Please turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 15. We are finishing 1 Corinthians 15 today. I, I meant to look to see how many messages it had been. I think this is maybe the seventh message in 1 Corinthians 15. It's 58 verses, so it's a long chapter. Uh, but there's just so much to learn, has there not been, in this tremendous chapter of Scripture. The, the most comprehensive teaching that we have in the Scriptures on the resurrection of Jesus Christ and what it means to us and why it is important to us uh, certainly other passages are important as well, but this is the most comprehensive teaching that we have. You know, there are many times in life where envisioning the end of something is an important part of achieving its goal. If you have ever tried, uh, say, to lose weight, envisioning better health, envisioning those pants that you can't fit into but you want to, uh, seeing those things in the, the, the future are very helpful as we seek to eat those foods that we should and not eat those foods that we shouldn't and get out when you don't really feel like it and get exercising anyway. Seeing the end is helpful today. If I want to learn something, say if I want to learn an instrument, if I want to learn piano, Envisioning my ability to simply sit down one day and start playing gets me through the difficult times when I just plain don't want to practice. I just don't want to go bang on those keys and make all those mistakes and, and have to learn how to read those notes and all of those things. But, but knowing that one day if I keep up with it, I will be able to play like I want to play keeps me focused as I envision the end of the thing. Often the anticipation of the end of something is a big part of the motivation that gets me there. The same part is also true in the Christian life. In 1 Corinthians 15, we have been looking at the end of our salvation. If you are a born-again believer in this room, if you have accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior by believing in His person and His work, what He has done and what He has claimed... If you're a born-again believer, the resurrection of the dead unto a new and an incorruptible body is your future. This is what you have to look forward to. It's the end that you not only want to be aware of, but in reality, it's, it's an end that you need to be aware of. You need to know that good times are coming. You need to know that this frail body will give way to an immortal body. You need to know these things for your Christian life. Say, Pastor, why is it so important? Why is it so important that we, we are given the end? Why is it so important that we know that we have resurrected bodies coming? That we know that our salvation is nigh? That we know that, that these things are on the horizon? It's important because this journey that we call the Christian life is not always fun. And it's not always easy. And if you don't have in your mind all the goodness that is to come, you might just quit before you get there. The life of the believer is filled with self-denial. It's filled with trials. It's filled with persecutions. Certainly there is great spiritual and personal 
joy in the Christian life. But we live in a world of darkness. And if there is one thing that the Bible makes very clear about those who reside in darkness, it is that they have a particular hatred for the light. It's not just that they see the light and they say, oh, look, the light. They hate the light. It's like when you wake up in the morning, right? And the curtains have been closed and it's dark in your room and somebody that's far too chipper for the morning comes in and says, good morning, and they throw open those curtains and you go, ah, and it hurts your eyes and you don't want them to be there. You don't even want to be there. It's not a fun thing. It, 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 you're repulsed by the light because the light, when it shines into the darkness, it, it, it indeed causes pain. Your eyes struggle with that. Now, we heighten that by a million times and we get the difference between the spiritual darkness that this world resides in and the light that is your life if you are a born-again believer. The world does not just say, oh, look, light, when we throw open the curtains. They recoil. They hate it. It hurts. They don't want it. And so, on the authority of the Scriptures, we, we know that the world hates us. 1 John 2, John said, Marvel not, my brethren, if the world hates you. Jesus Christ told us in John 15, If the world hates you, know that it hated me first. You may not always feel this hatred from the world. Perhaps this is because you have very limited circles. You only interact with people that don't hate the light. Perhaps it's because of, of the culture that we live in. We live in a culture that is still fairly... Um, kind to Christianity, getting worse every day, but still fairly um, benign when it comes to what it means to be persecuted for the faith in this country. But the unbelieving world does indeed hate what you have because you live in the light. And the light that you shine exposes their darkness. It makes them feel guilty. And they don't want to feel guilty. So they hate what you are. Have you ever noticed how much sin loves company? I grew up in public schools, and so I was around a a good amount of of problems. Um, Lots of drugs, lots of alcohol. It was a a fairly affluent area. We didn't live in that area, but that's where the school was. And so there was a lot of the designer drugs, things like ecstasy, a lot of drinking, a lot of the the rich boy syndrome. And what what, what amazed me was that this stuff is really expensive. These drugs, this alcohol, it's really expensive. But they were never afraid to share it. Nor were they ever apprehensive to share it. All of these things that they were doing, all of these problems that they had, they always wanted to drag other people into it with them because sin loves company. And we all know why, right? Because if I'm doing something wrong and I can convince somebody else to do something wrong, I feel less guilty because I'm not the only one doing it. And when somebody stands up and says, no, I'm not going to do that because that's wrong, I don't like them because they make me feel guilty about what I'm doing because I know it's wrong, but I don't want to think about the fact that it's wrong. Right? This is, this is human nature 101. We've all seen it. That's the world. And because the world does what's wrong and not only does it, but takes pleasure in it, when we live apart from the world, and shine that light into the dark world, it's not that they become more guilty, but their guilt bubbles up to the surface. They don't like that, which is why the world dislikes us. 
which is why, as we look around at culture, they're not trying to censor the Muslims. They're not trying to censor the Buddhists. They're not trying to censor anybody but those who claim Christ. Because Jesus Christ said in John, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. Because there is only one religion that is shining light into the world, and that's the relationship of God's people with Jesus Christ through his church. So the world will hate you. Jesus Christ said this in Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 44. He said this, This I say unto you, love your enemies. Bless them that curse you. Do good to them that hate you. And pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you, that ye may be children of your Father which is in heaven. For he maketh his sun to rise on the evil and on the good and sendeth rain on the just and on the unjust. So in the midst of this hate, right? This world that persecutes us, this world that hates us, this world that scorns us, in the midst of this hate, you have a command given by Jesus Christ Himself that when they curse you, you're to bless them. That when they hate you, you're to do good to them. That when they use you, take advantage of you, persecute you, you're to pray for them. The world hates you, but the world is not your enemy. I hope you don't leave the doors of this church on any given Sunday, look out at the people around you and think that they are your enemy, because they're not. I hope when you read the paper and you read about all of these sodomite marches or you read about um, these uh, crazy lesbian governors who are subpoenaing pastor sermons or you read about atheists who are trying to get mangers taken down out of public squares and people who destroy Christian monuments or who put a plaque over the ichthys fish on a, on a, a memorial, a veteran's memorial or all of these things that you see happening. I hope you don't hate them. Because that's the world that you're to pray for and to bless and to love. That's the world that you are to do good unto. These people lost in darkness. See, because your enemy is not the world around you. Your enemy is spiritual, not physical. The world hates you because the world is the servant of the enemy. But they are not the enemy themselves. The battle you fight is not against flesh and blood. We learned that much earlier in the book of 1 Corinthians, right? For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers, against rulers of the darkness of this world, against Satan and his demons. Peter warned us in 1 Peter 5.8, be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the ACLU? No. Your adversary, the government? No. Your adversary, the world around you? No. Your adversary, the devil, as a roaring lion, walketh about, seeking whom he may devour. This is your adversary. His name is Satan. His name is the devil, the great accuser. Even above a world in darkness that hates you when you love them, your adversary is busy seeking to destroy you. He wants to destroy your faith. He wants to destroy your relationship with God. This adversary uses the world around you to tempt you to yield to the distinctives, yield your distinctives as a spirit-empowered believer. 
and to yield them to the temporary happiness that this world has to offer. Satan puts before you this opportunity to fulfill your happiness today, yielding the long-term blessings of obedience to God. And that's what he wants you to do. He wants you to take today's joys, to take the joys of this material world, to watch those things, to go those places, to do those things that God commands us not to. And Satan says, it's okay, enjoy today. Two weeks ago, when we were last here in 1 Corinthians, isn't that what Paul said? That if, if none of this matters, then we should just eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. But we have a purpose. We, we yield today's pleasures we yield those things that are wrong. Not to say that everything in the world is wrong. We don't yield. We don't go hide in a monastery, right? With just our Bibles. That's not what we do. We live in the world, but we're not of the world. We yield what the world says is, is important to Christ. And we live that which is important to Christ. Believing that if we give of ourselves today, that there will be rewards tomorrow. Satan doesn't want you to think this way. Satan wants you to think that, that you can live however you want today and it doesn't matter. You live in a body that the Scriptures regularly call the flesh. It is predisposed to rebel against God. It wants to rebel against God. That's what happened in Adam. We learned about that a few weeks ago. It is by default directed in the opposite direction of God. It's rebellious by its very nature. And if you allow it, your body will rebel against God at every turn. And so as born-again believers in this world, we are indwelled with the Holy Spirit. We have the capacity to unplug ourselves from our flesh and serve the Lord. We have the capacity to live in the light and not in the darkness. We have the capacity to set aside those things, those worldly lusts, in order to pursue the Word of God. And yet, look at all that we have that's opposing us. You have your own flesh that's opposing you. You're, you're struggling against it every day. Paul talked about it in Romans 7. He said, For the good that I would, I do not, but the evil that I would not, that I do. This wrestling with ourselves against our own flesh, the things that we know we ought to do are the things that our body doesn't want to do. I don't want to get up early and open my Bible and spend time in prayer, communing with my Lord. The, the flesh doesn't want to do that. The flesh wants to stay in bed where it's warm. Oh, it's getting cold out there, isn't it? And the flesh wants to stay in bed where it's warm. The flesh doesn't want to spend time in its week gathering around with believers. This, these, are, these are things of the Spirit. And so we're wrestling against that. And not only are we wrestling against that, but then we're wrestling against a world that hates us because of who we are. And then not only are we wrestling against the world that hates us, but we are wrestling against the spiritual adversary that compels them. Say, Pastor, this is a downer of a sermon. It'll get better. See, this is the intro. Because this is why we need to know the end. This is why the end is so important. This is why it's important to know what you go home to. You know, I was uh, driving back from Cleveland this past Monday morning. We were trying very hard to beat the snow and, and didn't quite work. We had about an hour in the snow. So I thank the Lord it was not too bad. But you know, I've been in snowstorms before where the only thing compelling me to keep going is the fact that I want to go home. 
The only thing that doesn't stop me from pulling over is the fact that I just want to get home. Have you ever felt that before? You just want to get home. And so you keep going and it's your motivation. It's not pleasant right now, but you know that if you get through it, you'll be home. That's what Paul's presenting today. He's going to show you your home. So that if you will just stick to the stuff today, if you'll just keep working for a few more brief years, if you'll just be faithful to God today, one day you'll be home. You'll be at rest. And you'll be at peace. And not only that, but because of your faithfulness, you will have crowns to cast at the feet of the Savior. As you hear those words, well done, thou good and faithful servant. So that's what we're going to talk about today. That place where the devil is gone, your body filled with weakness and pain and temptation will give way to a body fitted for heavenly existence, free from pain, free from weakness, free from temptation, free from the limitations of this flesh. So we need to know about it. And that's why we've been learning about it. And today Paul puts kind of the cherry on top. He saves the best for last, we might say. He gives us a deeper understanding of what we have to look forward to. We're not going to look at heaven today. That's an encouraging uh, thought for another day. But we are going to look at the very final bit of teaching about our resurrection that is to come. And as we do so, I encourage you to look with me in your Bible, beginning uh, in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 51. We'll read to the end of the chapter. Behold, he says, I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trump, for the trumpet shall sound, and the dead shall be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruptible shall have put on incorruption, and this mortal shall have put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O grave, where is thy sting? Excuse me, O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, which giveth us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be ye steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, for as much as ye know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Paul tells us in verse 51 that he's about to reveal what he calls a mystery. Now, we need to be careful here about what Paul is saying and what Paul is not saying. This word mystery is found 27 times in the New Testament, and it speaks of something that God has chosen not to reveal until uh, a certain time. He, he did not choose to reveal it through his prophets in the past until the time that he deems necessary. This is not secret knowledge. Don't get me wrong here. Uh, we, we have, every once in a while, um, false teachings crop up. They, they're all the way back to the new, uh, early church. In the early church, it was a teaching called Gnosticism, uh, derivative of, of the Greek word for knowledge. And this teaching was that you, you have to have 
secret knowledge, things that, that's not revealed to everybody, that you have to kind of work your way up in the ranks to get enough knowledge to be pleasing to God and to learn the things of God. That's not this. Paul is writing this epistle to anyone and everyone who will read it. Not everyone will understand it, but, but it's not hidden secret knowledge. This is simply something that God had chosen in His sovereignty to not reveal to the prophets, to not reveal until this last time. He's writing in plain words. He's officially revealing a mystery that to this time had not been revealed, but now it is time to manifest. And there are several such mysteries spoken of in the New Testament. Some have already been revealed. Others are yet to be revealed. We see in the New Testament quite regularly teaching on the mystery of the kingdom. Jesus spoke of these mysteries, teachings that had never been given through the Old Testament prophets, but were revealed to those who believed. These mysteries were taught to be the spiritual nature of God's kingdom through atonement of Jesus Christ and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. The prophets surely knew that Messiah would come, The prophets surely knew that Messiah must die. We we read these prophecies in the Old Testament of His coming, of His death, of His atonement. However, the prophets were not told that the kingdom would first be spiritual and that operating uh, this kingdom would operate within the kingdom of men prior to the literal fulfillment of God's kingdom, which is yet to come. This was a mystery. This was something that Jesus Christ came and nobody expected. No Jewish, even those who had been faithful and who who accepted Jesus Christ and believed Him, none of them expected the kingdom to kind of come in two phases. To come first spiritually and then physically. And so this was what Jesus Christ called the mystery of the kingdom. Found in Matthew 13.11, Mark 4.11, and Luke 8.10. We also see in Scripture, and this one is probably the most prevalent, the mystery of the church, or sometimes called the mystery of the gospel. I believe in many ways they are interchangeable as we see them taught in Scripture. The church was a mystery. There was no prophetic revelation that indicated to anybody going as we enter into the New Testament that God would initiate a period of time where national Israel would be set aside as a spiritual body, and that this commission would be given to a new spiritual body made up of both Jews and Gentiles to reveal God to the world. Israel had a purpose. They were elect unto a purpose in the Old Testament, that they would be rightly related to God so that they could show the rest of the world how to be rightly related to God. This was the election of Israel. Israel was not elect unto salvation. They were elect unto this purpose. And when Israel came and rejected their Messiah, that purpose transitioned away from Israel. God took it away from national Israel and gave it to the church, those who would accept Jesus Christ as their Savior. So now we have the responsibility to do what Israel had formerly had the responsibility to do, which is that we would live a life rightly related to God so that we could show others in the world how to live a life rightly related to God. We live out the testimony of Jesus Christ to show the world that they could have this too. Now, this mystery is presented in several contexts in the Bible. In Romans 11.25, the mystery of the church is said to be that Israel would be temporarily blinded to the truth 
so that the Gentiles could come in. So Israel is in a state of temporary, temporary spiritual blindness. They don't recognize their Messiah. They don't understand the truths of God's word. And they're in this state of temporary blindness for the direct purpose, Romans 11 says, that the Gentile world, those who are not Jews, might be able to come into the church before God reinitiates his plan with Israel and removes the blindness from their eyes. In Romans 6.25, the Bible calls the mystery of the church the gospel, that literally the gospel of Jesus Christ, that Jesus Christ died on the cross for our sins, that he was buried and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures, that this was the mystery, that this was that which had not been revealed until this time. In Ephesians 1.9, the mystery of the church is labeled as the mystery of his will, the mystery of God's will, that this was God's will for this time, that God would initiate this program with the Gentiles called the church. In Ephesians 3, verses 3 through 6, the mystery of the church is said to be that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs and of the same body and partakers of his promise in Christ by the gospel. It's the same thing we've been saying. The mystery of the church is that the Gentiles will be welcomed into this spiritual body known as the church. It's not just going to be God using national Israel anymore. National Israel is set aside and a group of Jews and non-Jews will come together to create the church and they will be God's body. In Ephesians 5.32, the mystery of the church is said to be that the body, God's church, will operate in complete conformity and submission to its head, to the will of Jesus Christ that this was a mystery. That Jesus Christ, that the Messiah, would be the head of a body that was still on this earth without Him. And that the body would move in accordance with Jesus Christ's teachings and expectations. This was a mystery. The Old Testament did not foresee this. God did not reveal this. And then in 1 Timothy 3.16, it's called a mystery. It's called the mystery of godliness. That Jesus Christ was revealed manifest in flesh and that he died to save the world from their sins. So we have the mystery of the kingdom, something that was not revealed in the Old Testament. Now the kingdom was, but not the direct nature, this bipartite dichotomy of spiritual kingdom first, then physical kingdom. We have the mystery of the gospel, a deeper understanding of what the kingdom is, that the church will be comprised of both Jews and Gentiles, that the Messiah will come, redeem the world, then leave and allow this body to maintain, to continue to function in the world for a time. We have another mystery. This is the final, um, other, other than the one we're talking about today, this is, this is the final one uh, that we'll, we'll discuss outside of our context. And in 2 Thessalonians 2.7, it's called the mystery of iniquity. The mystery of iniquity. We have been talking about this for several weeks in our evening service as we've been going through end times events. The mystery of iniquity is the wicked system that will dominate the final years of this earth led by an evil man that we call Antichrist. He's given several other names. He's said to be called the man of sin. He's called the prince that shall come. He's called the beast. He's called by many names. The degree of lawlessness that will be revealed in the final days of this earth can only be 
understood in what we might call the minor manifestations of iniquity and godlessness that we see around us. In other words, if you think it's bad today, just wait until the mystery of iniquity is revealed. Then it's going to be really bad. It's um, an evil that, that we cannot even comprehend. If the evil that is in this world today is only the beginning, we can hardly comprehend what the mystery of iniquity will be like. And then, as we've talked about these other forms of mysteries, we'll transition back to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 51, as Paul says, Behold, I show you a mystery. This final mystery that's mentioned in the New Testament, what we would perhaps call the mystery of the rapture or the mystery of the resurrection. To this point in the biblical record, there had been Uh, No real teaching, no real um, complete enunciation, depending on when when you, you recognize each book to be written, on this issue. God is using Paul to reveal something, to reveal a mystery. And the mystery is this, he says, we shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. That word sleep was often used, it was really in the Hebrew mind, the idea that they oftentimes use the word sleep to describe death. We see sometimes in the New Testament, even the Hebrews were confused as when Lazarus was dead and Jesus says, Lazarus sleepeth. We should go wake him. And the disciples say, wait, no, he's, if he's asleep, he does well. He's sick. He needs, to, he needs his rest. And Jesus came out and said, Lazarus is dead. He was using that word sleep to describe death. And this is very common in the Hebrew mindset for for those two words to be interchanged. And that's the way Paul is using the word here. We shall not all sleep. We will not all die, he says. But we will all be changed. We will all be transformed. Now, remember the context within which we find ourselves. Last time we were together, we spoke of the reality of our resurrected bodies. They won't just be our present bodies in perfect form. As we're flying through the air, it's not just that all of my freckles are going to go away, right? Because those are skin spots. It's not just that um, my knees are going to start feeling better as I'm floating through the air. It's not just that all my hair is going to grow back. It's not just that my teeth are going to straighten and whiten. And then I'm going to end up in this really nice me. That's not what Paul taught, right? Paul taught that it will be a different body. You know, may it look the same? Yeah, it might. We could fight about that. We could speculate on that. We could split the church over it. But really, it doesn't matter. We don't know. We might look the same. We might not. I think we'll be recognizable. Scripture seemed to speak to that. But we really don't know. But what we do know is that it will be a body that is entirely different, not fitted for this world, the world where we breathe, the world where we have to deal with um, our cells dying and having to regenerate. The, the world where we have to deal with pain through our nervous system. We won't need any of that. We'll, we'll have a body fitted for heaven, not a body fitted for earth. And so as we consider this context within which we find ourselves, Paul says that there will be a generation of the church that will not die. But even though it will not die... It will still be changed from a corruptible body into an incorruptible body. From a mortal body into a 
resurrected body. And he says this in verse 52, in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trump, for the trumpet shall sound and the dead shall be raised incorruptible and we shall be changed. So Paul describes in verse 52 this future point in history. He says first that it will happen in a moment, literally in the jerk of an eye, in an instant. You all know how fast an eye can move from one thing to the next, how quickly it can jerk from from one focus to another. We also, I mean, we recognize that our eyes are constantly moving just a little bit, right, to see through the blood vessels and such. And so as we understand how quickly our eyes can move, This is the kind of instantaneous action that Paul is using to describe the moment of time when believers will be changed from mortality into immortality. It will happen like that. It will be, it'll, it'll be mortality into immortality. Immediate, in the twinkle of an eye, in the jerk of an eye. Now second, as we try to put together what, what will happen and when it will happen, Paul says it will happen at the last trump. Now, we spoke of this in our evening service again a couple of months ago. What does he mean here by the last trump? Many of this, many people have interpreted this last trump to mean the final trumpet sound recorded in the Bible. After all, it says the last trump, right? So they go and they look for the last trump, and many of them uh, found it in the mid, around the midpoint of the, of the tribulation period. They found it just after... Um, you, you had your, um, your seal judgments and then your trumpet judgments and then your vial judgments just after the, uh, at, at the sixth trumpet. The sixth trumpet is the last recorded trumpet in the book of Revelation. So they say, aha, there it is. This is happening at the last trump. I look and I find the last trump to be at the midpoint of the tribulation. Therefore, we must not leave until the midpoint of the tribulation. But that's not the last trumpet recorded in the Bible. It's the last trumpet recorded in the book of Revelation, but if you go to Matthew 24, Jesus states that after the tribulation of those days, a trumpet will sound and the elect will be gathered and the unrighteous will be removed from the earth. This is consistent with Jesus' teachings in Matthew 13, the wheat and the tares, that God said, let the wheat and the tares grow together and then at the end of all things, when the harvest is ready, pull up the tares and throw them into the fire and then gather the wheat into my barn. Matthew chapter 13 is where we see that parable of the kingdom. Matthew 24 is where we see this final trump. I'm sorry I'm, I'm, I'm summarizing all this, but I just preached it a few weeks ago Sunday evenings. If you weren't here, it's online. So why would Paul say the last trump if it's not the last trump? Or is it the last trump? Well, if it is the last trump, then we're all... Then, then the consistency of Scripture as to the reality that we will not go through the tribulation period, that we will not go through those seven years, that we are saved from that wrath that is to come, the consistency of the Scriptures that teaches us the nature of the tribulation is not for believers, but is for judgment upon unbelievers and the chastening of the Jews back to himself is all wrong and, and everything that we understand about the Scriptures falls apart. And so what else could be said here? Well, it depends on our perspective. Just because something is said, particularly in the Hebrew mind, to be last, it doesn't mean it can never happen again, does it? If I eat the last cookie in the cookie jar, because I, 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 I tend to eat the last cookie, 
tend to eat the first cookie too and all the ones in between. That's just the way I am with cookies. But if I eat the last cookie in the cookie jar, does that mean that that cookie jar can never be refilled? No. If I told you I ate the last cookie, you would not even imagine to yourself that every cookie is now gone. That I can never find a cookie again because pastor ate the last cookie. So last doesn't inherently imply the very last. It simply means the last of a set. The, the final of something. If I take the last ticket to a soccer game or to a football game, it doesn't mean there won't be more games. In the same way, the last trump in Scripture, and this is very consistent, doesn't have to mean the very, very last. It can simply mean the designation of the end of something. The, the trumpet at the end of something. And as we interpret it, we would recognize the trumpet at the end of this age. The trumpet that designates the end of the time for the church. The last trumpet. You say, Pastor, you're doing linguistic gymnastics. Well, I'm not. Uh, it's very consistent in Scripture to recognize the word last this way. But if you don't believe me, that's fine. Uh, do the study. Um, there may be another explanation as well. So, this event, it will be instantaneous and it will happen at the last trump, whatever you desire this last trump to be. When this trumpet sounds, the Bible says the dead in Christ shall be raised and they will be given their incorruptible bodies. First Thessalonians tells us that the dead in Christ shall rise first and then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to be with the Lord forever and so shall we ever be with the Lord. Now, um, this event has been painted in a very particular way in the past century. A time where all of a sudden scores of people around the world who are believers will suddenly disappear from off the earth. Grave plots will burst open and bodies will go flying through the air. I've even, uh, just as, as, long, as much as, as a few weeks ago, I presented this, but as I was studying 1 Corinthians, I started wondering particularly based upon what we learned about the resurrected bodies being so different and recognizing th some of the things we talked about, about cremation and, and uh, bones that have been decaying and buried for years and how none of that is a hindrance to God and His miraculous work here, I started wondering if we weren't thinking of things maybe a little bit differently. So I'm going to propose something. This is not me saying this is Bible truth, but what I am going to give you is perhaps another option as we think about this. This event has been painted as uh, an event, and uh, you'll, you'll, you'll see in just a moment behind me, uh, a cartoon that's been going around the internet recently. Maybe it's been going around for years. I've just seen it re recently. The old rapture hatch. Don't let pesky roofs and ceilings keep you from the loving arms of your Lord. Get a rapture hatch, right? so that your body doesn't hit the ceiling, so that it, 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 it makes it all the way to the loving arms of your Lord. And I saw this going around, and I started thinking about this, and, and obviously we know that none of these things would actually be a, a problem, be a hindrance. But um, by the way, folks, if you're not able to laugh at yourself a little bit, then, um, then you need to lighten up a, a little. I, I don't necessarily appreciate those that scoff and scorn me, but I can appreciate a little humor in this. 
And I, but I started thinking about this. After what we learned last week, you know, this is not the body that's necessarily going to meet the Lord in the air, is it? This body that I'm in is not necessarily the body that's going to meet the Lord in the air. We aren't going to have this body even in its perfected form. We're getting something new, something fundamentally different, a newer body for the, uh, a new life, for a, a new atmosphere, for, for a new living place, an incorruptible body for an incorruptible life. Our eternal lives that are within us will finally be met with a body that can support it properly. So may I present to you a thought? Again, this is not me saying I'm changing theology and history. I'm just presenting a thought. What if scores of people didn't appear, disappear at once at the rapture? What if the graves didn't burst forth? What if the dead in Christ raising was not raising out of the ground, but raising into a new life in a resurrected body? What if we simply left our old bodies behind to burn with this old world as we received our new ones in the air? What if instead of every believer disappearing at the rapture, every believer's mortal body simply lay uninhabited as their soul and spirits receive new bodies? What if instead of the world having to explain away scores of disappearing people, they only had to explain away scores of dead people, seemingly dead people? I'm not saying this is true. But what I'm saying is, as we read 1 Corinthians 15, it's just as reasonable to think. Since we're getting new bodies anyway, perhaps it's just as reasonable to think that our old bodies will be left here as opposed to our old bodies will vanish. Because this is not the body that we're going to have in the resurrection. Again, please don't, we're not going to start a cult around this or anything. Okay? This is not your pastor's strange, obscure teaching that becomes a cult. This is just taking the understanding of Scripture and saying it could be that our bodies will disappear. But it could also be something different because these aren't our bodies in the resurrection. It's not going to be this. So that's a thought. Something to chew on. Something to bounce around. Verse 54. So when this corruptible shall have put on incorruption... And this mortal shall have put on immortality. Then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. When this rapture does happen, when in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump, our bodies are removed from this earth, the dead in Christ first, and then ours are raised, maybe from the ground, maybe from the earth, maybe simply in that term raised as in being brought up into life, being made new. If we are raised to newness of life, when this happens, it will be the beginning of the end and the beginning of the fulfillment of the prophet who said death is swallowed up in victory. When you're reading your Bible and you see those words, it is written, or that is written, or the prophet who said, trace that. Because that means they're quoting Old Testament Scripture. Find out what it's, what's being quoted and the context within which it, it is. Because that's what the author is trying to point you to. And he's pointing us here to Isaiah chapter 25, verse 8. See, this, this rapture thing is a mystery. 
that, that Paul is revealing. But that doesn't mean the end result was a mystery. Isaiah saw it. Verse, verse 8 of Isaiah 25, He will swallow up death in victory, and the Lord God will wipe away tears from off all faces, and the rebuke of His people shall He take away from off all the earth, for the Lord hath spoken it. Isaiah speaks of a time when pain and suffering that accompanies this mortal existence will give way to nothing but joy and victory and eternal life. Death will be destroyed. Death will be swallowed up in victory. God made a similar declaration in Hosea chapter 13, verse 14. I will ransom them, He says, from the power of the grave. I will redeem them from death. O death, I will be thy plague. O grave, I will be thy destruction. Repentance shall be hid from mine eyes. In other words, he says, I'm not, I'm not changing my mind about this. Death will be destroyed. The grave will, will be plagued by me. I will overcome it all. And so Paul says in verse 55, O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? Where is the sting of death? when death only gives way to greater life? Where is the victory of the grave when the grave gives way to a deeper life than could ever possibly be imagined? All of the sudden, death is not something to fear. It's something to anticipate. All of the sudden, the grave is not the enemy. The grave is the place of rest. And this has been, for millennia, the rallying cry of the church that we do not fear death the rallying cry of the martyrs, that death is not the worst thing that could happen to us because we'll be in the arms of our loving Savior. Paul says in verse 56, the sting of death is sin and the strength of sin is the law. Why? Why is death defeated? Why is the grave conquered? The, the grave is conquered. Death is defeated because the sting of death is sin. What makes death so unpalatable is that we are sinners and the strength of sin is the law. What makes sin a reality is the fact that God has a holy and a moral standard that we have offended. And so because we have offended God's holy standard, Every single one of us has, right? Isaiah 64, 6. We're memorizing it right now. For we are all as an unclean thing. And all our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. Every single one of us is a sinner. And because you are a sinner, you are a sinner because you have offended God's law. And because you're a sinner, death stings. We don't want to die because we know at the end of death is judgment. For the wages of sin, the Bible tells us, is death. However, that verse has a but, right? For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. See, that's what Paul is saying here, that Jesus Christ has undone, that Jesus Christ has overwhelmed the sting of death, that the sting that is death has been swallowed up in victory. If eternal death and separation from God has been overcome and our sin nature has been conquered, then death's sting is invalidated and we are freed. We're freed from the fear of death. We're freed from the fear of separation from God. We're freed from the thought that death is the end for it is not the end. It is only the beginning. It's not the end of the road. It's, it's the beginning of the road. It's when eternity becomes reality. 
all at once through the atoning death and victorious resurrection of Jesus Christ from the grave, we who have accepted the gospel of Jesus Christ by believing on the name of Jesus to be saved from our sins have gone from the very deepest fear that haunts men, that holds men in its grasp to the very greatest hope that mankind can ever attain unto. Death is truly swallowed up in victory. Verse 57, But thanks be to God, which giveth us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul praises God. Thanks be to God, he says, who has given us such a great victory through Jesus Christ. The end of the story for the believer is not one of loss. We will not, nor can we possibly be defeated, for the victory is already won. And Paul says, thanks be to God for this victory. Maybe as you sit here today, you recognize you're not a part of that victory. You have never personally accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior. You have never set aside all other things that you might be trusting in to get you to heaven, your good works, your church attendance, baptism, whatever it might be. You've never set those things aside and trusted exclusively in the finished work of Jesus Christ to save you from your sins. You've never recognized that Jesus Christ is your Savior and aligned yourself with who He claims to be and what He claimed to do. You say, yeah, well, I know Jesus is God. Well, the devils believe and tremble as well. The devils know that Jesus is God. The question is, are you on God's side? See, the devils aren't on God's side. There's plenty of people in this world who know Jesus is God who will spend an eternity in a sinner's hell. Because it's not just about knowing whether Jesus is God, it's about whether or not you have cast your lot in with Him. Whether you have forsaken the world, taken up your cross, and followed Him. That's what Jesus Christ said. That the man who will not take up his cross and follow Christ to the grave is not worthy of Him. That the man who will be Christ's disciple will forsake all things in heart doesn't mean you have to sell everything you've got. What it means is that you're, you're, you do not place anything in your life above Christ. You are willing to forsake all things to follow your Savior, Jesus Christ. If you've never done that today, will you make today the day? See, Jesus Christ is more than just a Savior. He's a friend. He's a comforter. He's a brother. He is everything in this life that you need. You're tossed to and fro on the waves of this world, chasing materialism, chasing pleasures of the flesh, chasing popularity, chasing power, chasing riches, chasing something to find contentment, to find fulfillment, and you've not found it because you're looking in all the wrong places. Jesus Christ told the woman at the well that if she will but ask, He will give her a fountain of living water bubbling up from inside her. She didn't have to keep going to money to quench her thirst and then going to popularity to quench her thirst and then having to come over here to amusement and to quench her thirst or to antidepressants to quench her thirst or to whatever it might be, alcohol to quench her thirst. You don't have to keep going from place to place to place looking for something to, to, to dull the pain, something to, to uh, remove the ache 
something to remind you that you're not actually in this world and that you don't actually have problems, something to distract you for a little while only to have your problems come up again. Jesus Christ said, if you will accept from me this living water, you will have a fountain within you so that you will never thirst again. Contentment. Peace. Not an outside contentment and an outside peace. Not us having to drum it up through the things that this world has to offer, but an inward peace. If you've never experienced that, if you don't have that, would you make today the day where you align yourself with Jesus Christ? Paul said, But thanks be to God which giveth us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. So now you know what will happen. Will help you get through the week? Will serving Jesus Christ this week be just a little bit easier because you know that one day this mortal will become immortal? This corruptible will become incorruptible? You know that death has been swallowed up in victory and that will come to a head one day in the complete and finished work of Jesus Christ? Will suffering the hatred of the world this week be a little less painful knowing that one day all that pain will be gone? Will being mocked and scorned for your faith go from a bitter sting to a, a bittersweet remembrance as you consider all that you have in store for you one day? That's Paul's point. That's what he wants. That's what I want this morning. That's what it should do. And, and, and as we close, look at verse 58. Therefore, he says, in conclusion, because of what I've taught you for these past eight weeks, because of all that you've learned about the resurrection of Jesus Christ, because you know that Jesus did die and He is alive and He rose from the grave, because you know that He has victory over sin and over Adam's sin and, and He's renewing everything that was lost through man's rebellion, because you know that you have a resurrected body coming for you one day and that resurrected body will be unlike anything you've ever experienced, because you know that death has been swallowed up in victory, because of all of this that you know, He says, My brethren, my beloved brethren, be ye steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, for as much as ye know that your labors are not in vain in the Lord. Three things, he says, should characterize you because of what you know about your end. Number one, you should be steadfast. You should be settled that you will obey God. You should be settled in your faith. Number two, you should be immovable. You will be determined that if God reveals to you something you need to do, that you will do it, that you will obey, that you will be immovable and you will be obedient. And then third and finally, perpetually abounding. Abounding in the work of the Lord. Making God's work and God's will the very theme of your life. Did we not sing it this morning? Take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to Thee. Take my moments and my days. Let them flow in ceaseless praise. Let them flow in ceaseless praise. What did you sing? You asked God to help you be steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. Did you mean it when you sang it? 
So how are you doing this morning? Is your life defined by service to Christ and His kingdom? Is your life wasted on selfishness, sinful living, and personal pleasure? Are you settled in your faith, immovable in your determination to serve God and abound in the work that He has for you? Or is God simply a piece of you that you tack on when it's necessary or convenience? At school, do others know you're a Christian? Would your classmates be able to say, yes, that person is different. They don't laugh at those jokes when I say them. They don't go along with me when we want to do that and it's against the rules because they're different. They they say it has something to do with Jesus Christ. I want to know more about that. Maybe I'll ask them sometime. At work, are you different from the unbelievers around you? Not weird, but different. Righteously different. Do the coworkers know? No, no. When when we get into uh, to go behind our boss's back and do that, don't even ask him. He won't go along. He's straight as an arrow. No, no, no. Be sure that when you when you borrow those supplies from work, be sure he doesn't see you because he'll do what's right. He'll tell his boss. No, no, no. You don't even have to worry about him uh, and jokes. Uh, those, those, those dirty jokes. Don't, don't, even, don't even go up and tell him that you learned a new dirty joke over the weekend. He's, he's not going to want to hear it. He's certainly not going to laugh at it. Is that, is that you at work? You at school? Do your neighbors know there's something different about you? You know, those people down the street, there's, there's something different about the way that they live. I, I don't... Here, the wife complaining about the husband. Talking about how he has to lead him along. She has to lead him along on a leash all the time. How he, he doesn't even know what's good for himself. I don't, I don't hear that out of her. She respects her husband. She honors him with her words. The husband, he's a hard worker. I don't see him immature like all these other husbands on the street. Those kids, they listen. They obey. Mom says come inside the house. They come inside the house. Mom says don't do that. They don't do that. What's, what's different about that family down the street? They say it has something to do with Jesus. Maybe we should ask him sometime. Are you living in the victory that Christ has purchased for you? That's the question this morning. Are you living in the victory that Christ has purchased you. That's what he says here. You've learned all this great stuff about the resurrection. You've learned all this great doctrine about Jesus Christ. And doctrine is so important. Never, never think that doctrine is not important. It's essential. But folks, if we don't have the therefore, if we take all of this doctrine and say, well, that's good, and we go back and we live the way we're, however we want to live, we've missed it. Because doctrine is intended to work in our lives obedience. It is intended to conform us to the image of Jesus Christ. It's intended to make us more like Him. Let's live it this week.